The word idol or idolatry has been used a lot this morning. So let me offer a definition by Tim Keller. He says that an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. In short, anything that means more to you than God does is an idol. In this sermon, I want to convince you that worshiping idols leads to your spiritual ruin and worshiping Christ leads to spiritual vitality. Worshiping idols leads to spiritual ruin and worshiping Christ leads to spiritual vitality. Our passage is found in Isaiah chapter 44, that's just page 604 of your pew Bible. Go ahead and turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 44, we'll be looking at verses 5, or sorry, 6 through 23, 6 through 23. The reason I stopped at 23, I really do think you can keep going, it's it's one section, but I think that's when God is particularly talking about how, how how he's going to redeem his people. Through uh, his servant, the pagan uh, King Cyrus in verse 24. So we're stopping at 23 and we'll look at how God's going to use Cyrus to redeem his people from captivity in Babylon at a later time. I'm going to read verses 6 to 8 and then I'm going to skip down to 21 to 23 and we'll read this interesting section in the middle of the sermon. So let's look at Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servants. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will... Not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. God uses logic in order to convince his people that Christ leads to spiritual vitality and that idols lead to spiritual ruin. And so we're going to, in a sense, follow his logic in three different points. The biggest point will be the middle point. Let's start with point number one, the logic of worshiping God. The logic of worshiping God. If you notice in verse 6, There are several epithets attributed to God. 
Verse 6 begins, thus says the Lord. And in your Bible, that Lord is probably capitalized L-O-R-D. Yahweh is another way to, is a way to uh, translate the Hebrew word uh, for Lord. Yahweh is often how the name is pronounced and has been pronounced for, for centuries. But you don't know exactly how it's pronounced though. We do know a few things to help us understand the meaning of Yahweh. Names are significant in the Bible. Think about the name Jesus, which means Savior. Or Eve, which means living, fitting because she's mother of all the living. Or think about Abraham, father of many, or father of multitude. And for Yahweh, we're meant to understand simply, I am. Or perhaps I am who I am. We first see that in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. God wants Moses to go to the Israelites under Egyptian captivity and lead them out. And Moses asks God, who should I say sent me? God says to Moses, tell them this. I am who I am sent me. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Of all the things God could have said to identify himself, he says, tell the people that I am sent you. It's a kind of statement that you can't quite wrap your mind around if you just consider what it's the significance of it. Who are you, God? I am. I was camping in the, the great smoky mountains this past weekend and it was pitch black I looked up at the stars, and if you've ever got yourself lost in the stars, you, you know what I'm about to say right now. You, you stare at the stars, and you have this magnific, magnificent experience of your smallness and God's bigness. And you view yourself as just so much more less significant than you sometimes think you are. It's a good feeling to get a sense of your smallness and God's greatness. And yet you can't seem to exhaust that feeling. That's sort of how the name here, I am, is meant to give up. The the sense that I am is meant to to give us. Uh, We can't exhaust what it means. But when we dwell on it, it's, it's brilliant. It's wise. It's a great descriptor of the creator of the universe, the creator of all things. I am. Uh, While there is some mystery to the name, we do know that Yahweh, according to the scripture, is self-existent. He's powerful. He's eternal. He's unchanging. The God of the universe is the great I am. And then we even get more specifics here in the text. Look at verse 6. He's a king of Israel. It's not merely abstract I am, but we get more understanding of who I am is. The king of Israel, noting the covenant he has made with his people. He's also their redeemer. How he will bring them out, noting how he will bring them out of Babylonian captivity. And more importantly, the captivity of sin. And he's also the Lord of hosts or the Yahweh of armies. And then we see this phrase here, I am the first and I am the last. Let's look at that last phrase there. I'm the first and I'm the last. We see that three times in the book of Isaiah. The first, and they're all within the section of God sending his comforter. 
The first time is Isaiah 41.4, which says this. Who has performed this and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first and the last, I am he. And then we see that mentioned in our text here. We also see it in Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I have called, I am he. I am the first and I am the last. And we don't really see the phrase again until fast forward to the, to the book of Revelation. Where Jesus himself is identified as the first and the last. So listen with me, I, Revelation 117. The Apostle John records this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, now I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and of Hades. Revelation 2.8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last who died and return to life. And Revelation 22, verse 13 says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the King of Israel. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And now... Especially on this side of the cross and the resurrection. And as we wait for the first and the last to return. Here's the logical challenge. It's given here in the text. Look at verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. The Lord is saying. Who, who knows the future but me? Who has established the world and everything in it? And sovereignly ordered history but me. And the application is very simple. It's right here in the text. It says, therefore, since I am the first and the last, I am the covenant-keeping God. I love you. Therefore, don't be afraid. But be comforted by this. He's stating this so that they, his people in times of fear will not turn to idols in times of discomfort, they won't look to other cisterns. Here's the logic of God. Because I am transcendent, because I am personal, because I am your redeemer who loves you and cares for you, and because I am powerful, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Child, you should not fear. You see, God is tender in his love. And he's committed to us through his covenant. And as we keep seeing, he's tender and he's powerful. That means he's not only able to console us, he's also able to help us in times of discomfort. Mighty Jesus, the lamb who was slain and the lion of Judah. Oh, the wisdom of God. You see, we have no reason to fear if we know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you have every reason to fear. And we'll get to how you can not fear him in a second. But I'm encouraging you, if you're not a Christian, to keep listening. But Christian, when you are afraid or anxious, know this. You're not seeing Jesus correctly. When you are fearful 
or when you're anxious, you're not seeing Jesus correctly. Now, when you hear that statement, what I don't want you to do, and I don't think what the Bible wants you to do, is to feel guilty and bad for that. Here's the logic. Because God knows that in this life you will what? Have many troubles. There will be very difficult things that will give you many causes to be anxious and fearful. And the Lord in his kindness is saying, look upon me. Behold me. I am Jesus, the first and the last. I've demonstrated my love for you by dying on the cross for you. You see, Jesus expects us to have times, many times, when he knows we're not seeing him correctly. And so in his kindness, he says, look to me. I am gentle and lowly of heart. So church, when we see dimly in this world, we're not seeing Jesus correctly. God has given us his word to correct our vision. And he's given us other Christians, specifically Christians in the local church, to help us see Jesus better. But the key point in this point number one is this obvious logic. God is the creator. God is all powerful. And God is the king. He's also the redeemer. Jesus is God and he is unlike any other God because any other God is not really a God at all. That's what he's saying. And then he moves into this second point. Look at, follow along with me or if you're more helped by just listening, we're going to read this whole thing. Uh, Note to the humor of God in this passage. I'll try to read it in a way that expresses that as well. Note the humor, note the folly of idolatry. Let's look at verses 9 to 20, our second point. The illogicalness, yes, that's a word, the illogicalness of worshiping idols. Point number two, illogicalness of worshiping idols. Look at 44.9. The Lord says, all who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong before among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it burns in the fire, 
over the half, he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And then the rest of it, he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see. And their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Quite simply, God is pointing out the folly of idolatry. If you didn't catch the logic there, a silversmith or a carpenter, they take stone or metal or wood And they use some of it for heating to bake bread. And then they have this clump of wood left over. And they say, you know what, with that thing, I'm going to carve that thing up and I'm going to worship it. And then God says that their hearts are deluded. That they can't see. That they've shut their eyes. And they can't understand. Friends, that's why Jesus so many times when he's preaching, says, he who has ears, let him hear. If you worship these idols, you will be disappointed because they are fashioned by human hands. It's very simple. They're taking created things and molding them and saying to varying degrees that God or gods show their power through them. But they're the ones who created it. This makes no sense. They fashioned their own God by human hands and they've given their lives to it. And they turned to it for protection and deliverance. Oh, friends, this leads to spiritual ruin. And eventually, in God's judgment, you know what He does when we give ourselves to created things, even good things, and we put them above God? You know what God does often in His judgment? We become what we worship. He gives us over in his judgment. If you want more information on that, look at Romans chapter 1. Maybe after the sermon. My friends, this is the sad irony of idolatry. Is that you become what you worship. And for those that worship man-made statues for the millions upon millions In the nation of India and other places that literally fashion pieces of wood or metal or stone and call it a god. They spiritually become blind and deaf and dumb like their inanimate object that they're worshiping. So Psalm 135 says the idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but do not hear. 
nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see God's judgment? You want to give your life to this idol? God gives you over to that. It's a frightening thing, isn't it? God giving us what we want when we want is what is misplaced. Now, how do we connect that kind of idolatry in the Old Testament to idolatry now? Well, the New Testament kind of broadens the sense of idolatry a little bit. So listen to a few New Testament passages on idolatry. Because I doubt many of us are tempted to go to the woods, cut down a tree, fashion it, give it to a carpenter, and bow down before it. If you are, there's applications clear here. Do not be blind, dumb, and deaf like that idol. If that's not you, which I assume that's most of us, we're left with the question, all right, what does this mean for us? Well, let's look at the New Testament a little bit. You can jot these down or just listen up. 1 John 5, 20 and 21 says this, the very close of the letter. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. True. No, relational. You can know him. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. End of book. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 says this, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see what God's doing? True and living God, dead and false gods. Then we get a little more specific in Colossians and Ephesians. Listen to this. Colossians 3, chapter 5, or chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, broads it saying that Sexual immorality is included under the banner of idolatry. Nothing about worshiping a statue here. Ephesians 5.5 says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So, That's why Tim Keller's definition makes sense. Anything that you love or desire more than God himself is an idol. Idolatry is nonsensical because it goes against a true and living God. And especially for those of us who are Christians, we're tempted by idols to the left, to the right, frequently. And it really doesn't make sense for us because we know the living Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and who demands and is worthy of all our worship. And yet we still get tricked into looking at idols for deliverance and for joy. Keller goes on and says this uh, about idolatry in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says that the irony of, uh, talking about the irony of idolatry is that when human beings try to become more than, more than human being, 
to be as gods, they fall to become lower than human beings. Image bears stop reflecting God and they reflect creation. They become spiritually blind, deaf, and mute like their idols. Many of you have probably familiar with what John Calvin, the French reformer, wrote in 1559, that we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols, or that the human mind is a perpetual idol factory, always looking for something to worship other than God. Idolatry blurs our vision of Christ. It keeps us from worshiping who we were meant to and therefore gives no glory to God. And so in this largest point of these three points, I want to go through seven idols that are vying for your worship. There could be a hundred, there could be a thousand, there could be 300 million, like there are supposed 300 million Hindu gods. But here are seven that are probably vying for our worship in our context in America, in Kansas City, and even in our local church. The first one is this, money. Money. Proverbs says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. So money itself is not an idol. Let's be clear. But when you love money more than God, that's when it becomes an idol. And Paul is very aware of this. So in 1 Timothy 6, the very end of his letter to Timothy says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What? Christians in the church of Ephesus need to hear this. Warner Road needs to hear this. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evils and people love it so much they give up Jesus? Yes. Jesus himself says this, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, here are the two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Brother and sister, does money give you confidence and security? When you are financially strapped or when you don't get the car or house you wanted, how do you respond in your heart? Have you been honest on your taxes? If not, why not? Do you give to this church? If not, why not? I think every member should give something to this church, whether it's a dollar, a hay penny, whatever it may be. But giving to the church not only helps us carry out the Great Commission and care for the saints of Warnell Road, but it's a regular test of your own heart to see how much you might be gripping onto money. No. Uh, we give automatically through our bank account, but I kind of miss. You know, writing a check and putting an offering plate. This is a weekly reminder or a monthly reminder of us giving uh, some of ours back to the Lord and his purposes. Anyone has any that gives automatically, any way of, of, of not just doing it without thinking about it? I'd love to hear it. It'd be good to write in the newsletter. It is actually easy for us, by the way, if you do that. 
Um, but if it's an act of worship, then, then, then whatever it is, it's a, it's a good act of worship to give of what God has given you. Money can be an idol even when you don't have much because you can always be looking at someone else and desiring what they have. In 2008, there was a string of suicides by people who lost all their money because of Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. Some of these people were in part to blame for the Madoff scandal and some just got wrapped up in it. You see, the more you are devoted to your idol, the greater the hurt is when it's taken away. And it is a sad thing to watch a man or a woman be successful with all the gifts and talents they have in this life given to them by God. And instead of returning thanks to God, they start worshiping money. Um, I've told this story probably four years ago, which means two of you have heard it. Um, in 2008, or sorry, that was, no, my uncle John, he was the youngest of nine kids. He, so he was a young uncle, but he was my dad's uncle. But I call him Uncle John. He worked his way up. Youngest of nine, poor family outside of Philadelphia. Um, he was a smart man and he founded Searchy Fingerprint Laboratories. His company made millions and millions in crime scene investigation equipment. It started with fingerprints, but he grew it because he was an intelligent man. He hired intelligent people. He expanded the company to include things like night vision goggles. Their company invented a camera, which you've seen if you've watched any movies take place in the Middle East that deal with counterterrorism. Um, those, those cameras that can go underneath a car so there aren't any, to detect if there are any bombs in their cars. His company invented one of those and other equipment that the military purchased. Now, it was illegal to sell law enforcement company uh, equipment to certain countries, China being one of those. My Uncle John, through the counsel of others, perhaps the love of money, he did it anyway. And he did it through going through Italy and Italy selling to China. Well, he was caught and he entered a plea bargain. And guess what? In 2005, his company was caught again for doing that exact thing because money is influential and the love of money is the roots of all sorts of evil. It is a powerful God. My uncle John built amazing house after amazing house every two or three years. Friends, in God's kindness, I've seen what it looks like to watch someone who's successful and who loves money, and it is not pretty. It is nothing to be, it is nothing to envy. When he was dying, or so we thought, I went out to visit him. And I went to the fancy house he was in, and, uh, or kind of, uh, uh, you know, hospice type place he was in. And I sat there and I kept telling him the gospel over and over again. And my uncle could not hear it. You know what he kept saying? He kept saying, I can't believe I treated her the way I did. He's talking about his wife. They had a decent marriage. 
He wasn't a jerk all the time, but he was sharp toward Ruby. And the guilt that he faced for a life where he didn't treasure and prize his wife, and I think behind that, honor his God, he could not hear anything I was saying. He was blind and he was deaf to what could liberate him from his love of money. God gave him over. I don't know if he repented. He, he ended up kind of bouncing back for several months later after that. Friends, don't give in to the love and the worship of money. It is subtle. And it is dangerous and it is damning. Second idol is entertainment. Entertainment can be a wonderful gift from God. Comedy or sport or plays or dare I even say video games can be used for God's glory. But they can easily and subtly hold leverage over your heart. It's an easy escape from problems, isn't it? When you're kind of anxious or fearful or, or, or tired, you need to deal with something. Now all you got to do, you have to go buy a ticket and go to the movie or go to the play. You got to open up your computer and watch a whole series, if you want, of amazing storylines in a few hours. How many of us, even this past week, turn on a show or movie to stream when we're worried or anxious instead of first going to God? They aren't evil in themselves, but it's so easily we can start to love them and trust them more than God himself. Third is physical appearance, the idol of physical appearance. The New York Post reported that American women spend on average $3,756 on beauty products a year and men around 3000 you scroll through instagram there's all kinds of ways to to filter yourselves to make yourselves look more uh more attractive physically and part of the re- part of the way we can we cannot give into the lie that physical appearance is everything it, it, is one just to stare at the reality that you know When you were 20 or 25, maybe 30, you probably were in your prime. Not everyone. And that's okay. Don't let that land too hard, everybody. It's just when you're 20, 25, 30, you know, Daniel, Christina, you looked wonderful on your wedding day. Might not look like that again. (laughs) At least you won't wear a fancy dress and a tux like that. Maybe you will. I don't know. And that's okay, everybody. It doesn't have to be so sensitive. We all just kind of, you know, age. It doesn't last. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. I think we need to reorient ourselves to the classical conception of beauty, which is this. Beauty consists of an arrangement of integral parts into a coherent whole according to proportion and harmony, symmetry, and similar notions. Yes, young people get old. There's a place for caring about your physical appearance. You can read the book of Solomon to look at that. There's all sorts of interesting things going on there with oils and raisin cakes and other such things. So physical appearance is okay. It's a good thing to care how you look. But it so can easily become a God to us. The fourth thing is, fourth idol is sex. Sex seems to have been everywhere throughout the history of mankind as an idol. It was certainly was in the time 
uh, Paul wrote uh, his epistles in the Roman culture. You see, what is a gift from God for a man and a woman in a marriage has been twisted to various forms. I think recently the church could have done a much better job of portraying sex as a blessed gift from God for those in marriage instead of something to be merely feared or not talked about and so forth. Um, I, I, so many of us didn't really have conversations with our parents, did we, about what sex is. And so we're left to football locker rooms to figure out things for ourselves, which generally are unhelpful. So parents, let me encourage you, teach your kids before someone else teaches them about what sex is. That is a gift from God for a man and woman who are in a committed covenantal relationship with each other, also known as marriage. It's a good thing, but it so easily can be distorted. The New Testament relates lust and passions of the flesh to covetousness, which is idolatry. Coveting leads to sexual passions and influence and idolatry because when you covet, you're wanting something that you don't have. And friends, when you want something you don't have, you're in a way grumbling against God, your creator, the giver of all good things. And so if you find yourself wrestling constantly with sexual passions and lust, one way to fight that is to give thanks to God. Don't merely say, no, 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 bad, 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 bad. I can't do that. Look to God, your creator, and look around at all the good things he's given you. And if he's given you a wife or husband, thank God for your spouse. And if he hasn't, thank God for your state of singleness. Or if he had and your spouse has passed away, thank God for the time you had with your spouse. The idol of sex can lead to all kinds of unhealthy things. Gender reassignment, surgery. All these things do not lead to happiness. I don't even know what's going on today. It's just coming so fast. And church, one application for this is just to have a biblical view of sex, period. Fifth, feelings. Feelings, the idol of feelings. Carl Truman said, few, if any of us, are likely to argue that our own moral views are simply based on our emotional preferences. But the latter seems today to offer a good way of understanding how most people actually live their lives. It just feels right. I know it in my heart. It's a good thing. And other similar stock phrases are familiar to, all, to us all. And all point to the subjective emotional foundation of so much ethical discussion today. Feelings are powerful. And particularly, I was just going to call this one the idol of suffering. But I just want to broaden it called the idol of feelings. But I do want to talk about the idol of suffering for a moment. Uh, I was so helped when John Pentecost was here back in the spring. He said this profound statement about suffering and the way it's viewed today. He said this, suffering is something we used to celebrate overcoming, but now has become something we celebrate. Something used to be, suffering used to be something we celebrate overcoming, but now has become something we celebrate. Uh, friends, if you've ever suffered abuse or been close to someone who has suffered abuse or suffered at the hands of someone else, suffering is not glamorous. You don't vie for more suffering. Suffering stinks. It's hard. So we should not use suffering. We should not use feelings and suffering lightly. 
It's not mere semantics to just talk about suffering and abuse. If everything is abuse, then nothing is abuse. And that actually hurts those who are actually abused. Let us be a church that has wisdom when it comes to that. Brad Hambrick, who's a a pastor at uh, the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, says this about idols of suffering. He says, we want what God offers, but due to broken life circumstances, it is largely unavailable. We're looking for the closest thing we can find to what God offers in an attempt to make life work. We are confused by pain and want relief more than freedom. Friends, freedom from suffering is found in Jesus. Sixthly, influence. Influence. How many likes and followers do you have? What's your platform? Let me just encourage aspiring pastors here. Aspiring pastors, those who are in seminary, aspire to live a peaceful and quiet life. Maybe take, get yourself off of social media for a time. Or at least control how many likes you look at or whatever. For moms, be careful of the mom on Instagram who makes mothering her 20 kids look so easy and awesome. Look to Jesus and help him, help, let him understand let, let him help you understand what a faithful mother looks like. Friends, if you seek a big platform for platform's sake, God in his judgment might give you over to what you want. Fame serves as a pitiful God. And when your fame or your platform is taken away from you, when your object of worship is ripped away from you, you will feel a void. It will leave a hole in your heart. So friends, aspire to live a peaceful and quiet life and look around at all the people who are influencing others in this church today. Encouraged by our brother Jeff Chang, who's written a couple books or edited a few books, and you wouldn't know about it unless I said it from this pulpit. He lives a quiet and peaceful life, and he's influencing many because of it. I'm thankful for our sister Christina Farmer, who has led young girls in Bible study. And really enjoys serving the Lord in that capacity. I'm thankful for our sister Leah Emmerich. Who writes letters to teens and preteens in this church. And doesn't post about it. That is true influence in the church of God. And that is to be celebrated and delighted in. Look around. We're in a church with lots of people influencing one another. Isn't that the influence enough? Anything beyond that is just more responsibility that God has given you. Use it in wise ways. Lastly, I don't know what to call this one. So I just called it church identity. Church identity. It's understandable that we want churches to grow. It's understandable that we would want our church to grow even spiritual health, but especially in numerical health. However, that desire can morph into an idol. Uh, One way that churches can do that is by finding a camp and jumping in that camp. The style of preaching, or maybe you can be a woke church, a conservative church, or even a nine marks church. All of these identifiers can become idols that we can love more than God, and especially for those of us in ministry. See, the key with idols is that people will always reflect something, whether it's God's character or some feature of the world. 
Friends, if we are committed to God, says one author, these idols will become like, if we are committed to God, we will become like him. And if you are committed to something other than God, you will become like that something. Our last point, which because of time is serving as our conclusion, the logical response of the good news. Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. Here God tells his people to remember these things because they are his servants, not the servant of idols. For their own good and well-being, they are to worship him, which will lead to their spiritual vitality. If they worship idols, that will lead to their spiritual ruin. In contrast, God is saying that I formed you. You see the irony there? I am the one who fashioned and formed you. So worship me. God, again, is using logic. You are my servant and I will not forget you. And then he says, here's what I've done for you. And he gives him the gospel. Forgot to mention this, but this third point is called the logical response of the good news. The logical response of the good news. Verse 22. Here's the logical response to all this news. The clouds and the mist represent how effortlessly God is able to forgive their sin. Because God is the creator and the redeemer, he is the rightful object of worship and singing. And the good news of the gospel is that while we were idolaters, while we looked to anything to worship but God himself, God loved us first. And he demonstrates that love by Jesus going all the way to the cross willingly for idolaters like you and me. That's how our transgressions are blotted out here. That's how they disappear like a mist. Because there was a costly payment on the cross of Christ. It was not effortless on his part then. But for us, we don't earn or merit our way to God. He forgives us through his beloved son. And all he requires is that we confess that we are sinners or idolaters before him. And he forgives our sin and all of our sin are blotted out. So friend, if you do not know Christ, know him this morning. Come to Jesus. Turn from your sins. And be reconciled to God, your creator, your, worship, your, your redeemer, Yahweh. You see, Jesus Christ is the first and last. He is the creator. He is the perfect sacrifice for sinners. He is the one who resurrected and conquered death and the grave. And he is the one who will come and get his people. All his people who are former idolaters and now worship Jesus Christ. In conclusion... The worship of idols leads to spiritual ruin and the worship of Christ leads to spiritual vitality. Friends, forsake idolatry. Find a friend in this church and say, hey, I want to know more about the hidden idols of my heart. Will you pray for me about that? And if you see anything in my life, will you let me know? That should not be a scary thing to ask another brother or sister in the Lord. So over lunch, talk with someone about What could be your idols? Let's pray. Lord, your word says to keep yourselves from idols, to flee from idolatry. And so we pray that you would use your word to show us the folly and the futility of idols, of giving our lives to inanimate objects or ideas that are really your ideas. Oh, Lord, may we not elevate anything above the worship of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, would you help us as by your spirit? And as we sing to you, we pray that spirit, you would convict our hearts. 
and show us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.